You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Welcome to the new year, everyone. The old is gone and the new has come. This is season three, episode seven Cosmos in the Chaos. In this episode, I'm going to introduce you to abstract artist Ty Clark. Ty Clark is a well-known abstract artist, a devoted activist, writer, cinematographer, and philanthropist. His work is informed by an in-depth study of civil rights movements, literature, philosophy, and theology. Ty's art has been described as parabolic in nature, telling stories and visual representations of the human condition. He uses a variety of mediums and textures to create what has been termed a dismantled imagery, representing the incomplete bits and pieces of personality and memories that make up each human being. Ty has traveled the world exhibiting his work for the past 15 years while collaborating with other creatives in art and film. Currently, he is working on the completion of a documentary titled Jump Shot, featuring Steph Curry and Kevin Durant, which is set for release this year. Patrons of this podcast can visit patreon.com forward slash makers and mystics for an additional interview with Ty on his work in the making of this film and further discussions on his creative process. This is my interview with contemporary abstract artist, Ty Clark. Cosmos in the Chaos. Well, Ty, I'm super excited to have you on Makers and Mystics, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Absolutely. Really excited. Yeah. And I've come across your work primarily as a visual artist, but I know that you're kind of a multidisciplinary artist. Is that correct? Yeah. I I think the conversation I've had with uh, artist friends in the past is, am I an artist who wants to be a writer or am I a writer who wants to be an artist? Mm. Have you concluded that yet? (laughs) No, I think I get caught in between both of them on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's the beautiful thing, though, isn't it? It's, it seems like, and I, I find this in my own work, that the different works, they interpret one another, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think I was raised on literature and art from one side of the family, and um, they've always gone hand in hand with each other. Even in my artwork, I like to use a lot of text. And, and when I write, I like to write almost like I'm creating a painting with my words. So. Yeah. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background as an artist and just a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, I mean, I I was raised in basically two sides of a family. So I had my mom's side of the family um, were very artistic and cultural. So music and and art um, and literature and those things were huge with my grandparents. And then on my dad's side, uh, they were all athletes. Even though on my mom's side, they loved sports and were athletes as well. They took a more cultural, uh, I guess, uh, influence and my mom's oldest brother was a world-renowned sculptor who showed work all over the world in some of the, the largest museums. 
um, and was also the dean of the art program at UCSB for a number of years in the 60s and 70s. So I just grew up around art. Um, Art and sports were my life from grade school to high school to college um, and beyond. And so I I was always painting and I was always playing basketball and soccer. Uh, Basketball ended up paying for school. And I studied art and writing in school and didn't really follow the, the usual format um, of study. And after school, I knew my goal was to play basketball after college and to be an artist someday full time. And three years ago, I finally went full time uh, as a painter. I think in my experience, uh, I, when I struck out in T-ball, I figured out that maybe <laughs> I should go more of the music and art route rather than... Uh, than combining sports with it, so uh, to me, that's a little bit of an anomaly that you that you're good at both. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was an anomaly. It was a really confusing uh, place to be, always juggling two sets of friends growing up, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know that you've done a lot of research in subjects like the civil rights movements and different social and economic and cultural studies, and then you've also studied theology and philosophy and literature. So just really the overall human condition seems to be a big part of the work that you're doing. And so I'm curious if you could speak into that a little bit more and how these things have informed the work that you're doing. Yeah, I think, I think those, the, the question of human condition and just the human soul and life in itself, I think, hit me at a really young age when I was a, a victim of uh, sexual abuse. And I think as a young male being abused by another male, I think it took me in a direction that maybe really questioned what the human condition meant. And I think that kind of, I guess, opened up my, my mind to want to learn more about, you know, why, what does a victim mean? Um, and what are victims? I think even as a, at, at a young age, and I think as I grew, that continued to be something as my I guess my human condition continued to decrease to extremely low levels over a long period of time. I think I was always concerned with with those who were victims. Um, And so that's how kind of just racial inequality to uh, inequality on on any level really kind of struck me as why are these people feel this way? What is it that's affecting them? What are the things that are causing them to feel the way they are? Um, and then in 1995, I went with my father to Rwanda to work with uh, orphans from the genocide. Um, mm-hmm. Just, I guess, eight months post-genocide, we were there, and we were the, one of the first white groups allowed in the country. And I wow. think that was my first trip outside of America, and that's the world that I, that I saw for the first time. And I think that really opened me up even more to say, wow, life in this world and everything I know is not what I thought it was. And it really mm-hmm. kind of flipped this whole worldview on its head in my eyes of what America means and what the rest of the world actually looks like. And from that point on, it just absolutely changed the dynamic in, in my heart and my, my head and soul. And I was new to faith at that time as well. Um, just kind of really rocked me in a way that I thought I need to know as much as I can about the way the world and the human soul really works uh, on a massive level. And I started researching, reading, and studying those things. That's really fascinating to me because when I see your work, I can actually see what you just described to me. It's almost like it speaks through the color, it speaks through your process. And knowing what informed the work that you're doing, I can view your work with a little bit more of insight. Man, well, yeah, the the fact that you said that, like, 
it makes me feel really good because over the last, I'd say year and a half, I, I've really been wrestling with and writing about the question of how, how does my work speak when I'm not in the room? Um, and mm-hmm. as artists, we have voices and we, we each have a specific voice within our craft or within our genre of the arts. And I really started thinking through, I, I have a lot of really deep things and spiritual things I want to say through my work. But if I'm not in the room and able to really talk to you and explain why I've created this piece the way I've created it, is the same voice there when I leave the room. And so over the last year and a half, I've really spent an enormous amount of time trying to figure out how I can put into my work a voice that is close to my own voice when I'm not in the room, when it's hanging on the wall on its own. What does it say? How does it speak? How does the viewer see it? Um, So just having you say that, you know, kind of, tells me I'm on the right track. Yeah, man, that's that's amazing to hear coming from a visual artist because from the musical background, I've often thought about, you know, we make these recordings and then who knows who's encountering our music through a CD or on their, their Spotify playlist or whatever when we're not around. But to think of that in terms of a visual artist is pretty amazing to me. Yeah, I mean, that's a difficult thing to number one as a visual artist, to hang your work on a wall, which is really hanging yourself on a wall. Mm -hmm. You know, and as somebody who wants to share story and really let the viewer walk away with a feeling of remembering things maybe they've forgotten or experiencing deep truths from their past or or today. I mean, our our work is the challenge that can hopefully do that through somebody. Um, And that's not an easy thing to try and and find. It reminds me of a story of Henry Nowen, if you're familiar with him. Yeah, I love Henry Nowen. Yeah, and uh, his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, is just... One of my favorites. Yeah, it's in my top 10. But I just, I love the story of how he just sat in front of Rembrandt's painting and just got transfixed for hours. And then after encountering that painting, he walked away and his entire life course had been altered. Yeah. I think that speaks similar to what you're saying with even people encountering your work in a gallery or or when you're not around and just being able to take something from it. But you mentioned that when you hang your work, it's like you're hanging yourself on the wall. Tell me more about that. I always, uh, I work with a lot of younger artists and I have in the past. And and one of the things I kind of try and tell them, um, because for for a visual artist, there's so much soul that goes into a painting. And a lot of young artists are afraid to show their work, number one. Um, they want to show their work, but they're kind of afraid of what the audience is going to think. And number two, they're afraid to be in their room with their work um, because then they're forced to talk about it and be present um, and really kind of explain their soul. And, and I, I would kind of say that hanging a, a piece of work in a room is almost like walking into that room naked. Um, mm-hmm. And I tell a lot of artists, like, until you're truly okay with yourself, naked in your in your full glory of who you actually are you're never going to be comfortable with hanging your work on a wall and being present in that room Uh, and it took me a long time to get to that point to realize if i'm in the room with my work and i have this story i want to share it's so much more powerful with me being able to just bare bones the explanation and talk through the work and explain the process somebody especially with abstract art because there is so much soul and heart and spirit behind the work um that yeah, it's really, it's a very freeing uh, and a very difficult thing for artists to really put art on a wall and, and be present with it in the room. It's, it's extremely vulnerable. <laughs> yeah, extremely. 
I want to jump back to something and ask you a question because speaking of vulnerability, you know, you mentioned some of the, the difficult experiences that you had as a child. And I wonder, did you find a measure of healing in your art in coming to terms with some of what you went through? Absolutely. I mean, I, I worked through those things as a young adult um, after, gosh, I think letting them just sit and bury me into, you know, dark depression for 10, 12 years. I think I was 19 when I finally just kind of came to grips with, I, I need to get this out. Um, and so worked through that over, over a number of years. And just three years ago, gosh, it might've been, yeah, it was three years ago, I did a series called Healing Wounds. Um, and here I was at 40 years old going, man, I don't think I'm truly over this yet. Um, and I don't think you ever can be fully over it, but I, I started to really think through the correlation and the similarities between physical wounds and emotional wounds. Um, and so I started researching physical wounds and emotional wounds and how if there is no healing, they both have a very similar track to destruction, infection, death, those things on each side. Um, and so I started writing essays on these things and really researching them. And I started doing a series of paintings that really kind of shared my story. Um, and what that led to was looking at, at the time, I believe it was the Trayvon Martin shooting case and mm -hmm. the riots in Missouri. And I was like, man, why are these things happening? And so I went back to researching racial inequality and things that happen in, in communities where there is a deep wound that has festered over time and finally it gets infected and it comes to the surface. And so I did a whole series kind of based on those things. And I think for me, it was healing through my own personal process, but it was also a healing moment for me to kind of say, man, how am I gonna process these things that are happening that I'm not a part of, but yet they hurt me as an artist, um, as a thinker, somebody that just lays in bed worrying about people and communities that are breaking apart. Um, and so that was also healing for me to work through those things as well. You made me think what an immense role the artist has in culture right now and, and, and what a redemptive role we actually get to play. And it's fascinating you talked about your own healing of your own personal experience through art, but then how how your art almost moved beyond yourself to then a cultural engagement. And I just see a direct line of our own healing. And when we go through our own experiences of healing with something, then our art can also be a conduit of redemption on some level, even if we're still working through some things. One of my favorite quotes, I'm going to read it here from Madeline Langle, who's, who's my lady, I like to call her. Um, she says, in art, either as creators or participators, we are helped to remember some of the glorious things we have forgotten and some of the terrible things we are asked to endure. The artist must be obedient to the command of the work, knowing that this involves many hours of research, throwing out a month's work or going back to the beginning or sometimes scrapping the whole thing. When the art means even more than the artist knew they meant, then the artist has been listening. And sometimes when we listen, we are led to places we don't accept, don't expect into adventures we do not always understand. And I, I, I think of that quote all the time when these things just kind of hit me in, you know, these moments where you're like, guy, I wish I could be a part of helping that heal or I wish I could tell that story. And I think if we as artists, that's musicians, that's painters, that's dancers, that's 
photographers, if we're not constantly listening to what the Spirit is telling us and what's happening around us, then we're going to miss the voice that we have the ability to have um, in our communities and in our, in our world. You mentioned earlier, just as even part of your own life experience, that your faith and your spiritual journey has been a large part of your work. And I'm curious how that plays into when you're looking at these cultural situations and and these um, civil rights movements and these tragedies and these different things that that we encounter. When you're studying the, the human condition, how does your faith or your spiritual path play into some of that? That's a tough thing because I definitely don't shy away from my faith and my spiritual journey, but I also know that I need to be really, really thoughtful and careful. Um, I think that I think that today our world has done a, well, I'd say specific people have done a really bad job of putting the faith story in, in really bad lights. And I think too often we can judge people um, for who God is rather than judging God for who he is and understand that, that people are all broken and failed miserably. Um, and so, you know, I, with my work, I try to tell parables, um, rather than just come out and say, this is what I believe, this is who I believe in, and this is what I think is right. Um, I don't think I really have the right to do that, um, with people that don't believe what I do. And so through my work, I try to really tell deep stories that, that really combine just the cosmos and the chaos of life and hope that that influences them in a way that their ears are open and they're willing to to have a conversation with me or take deep things away from it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think one of my sayings over the last two years has been all things, no harmony. Um, Mm -hmm. And I believe that whether somebody is on the same faith journey as me or a different one, we both know harmony and we both want it in our lives. And I think that's a pretty cool meeting place, um, Mm -hmm. especially with artists. Everybody knows that there's chaos in our lives. And everybody knows that they want to find joy and harmony in their lives too. And if there's a way where I can intersect those and say, hey, we're both experiencing this joy and this harmony in our lives somewhere, what is that? And then maybe maybe at the end we can come to some type of agreement that there's something out there that does bring harmony. What does it look like? Um, yeah, yeah. But I, I would say I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty careful with that, but I'm also very bold. Yeah. Sometimes it would seem that the tension between like art and religion it's like religion seems to demand answers, whereas art tends to focus more on the questions. And it seems, and the thing that I see in your work, the thing that I admire in your work is that your art leaves room for the viewer to find his or her own response to it. Yeah, I mean, that's my job as an artist. Like, I, I want to observe the world around me um, and I want to share it with people. And I, and I think with visual arts, you have the ability to share things in a new and different way that maybe everybody can't see. And so, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a difficult thing because I want to share the love, the truth, the hard things, the suffering, but also the joy um, in my pieces. And I, I want to show like, this is the way that the world works in an abstract way, because I think too many things are so real and in our face on a regular basis that to start thinking in a more abstract way may bring you to truth and answers um, in a different light. And I think that's that's my role to be responsible with that. And it's it's not an easy role, um, but I, I need to be true to it. I love it. That's really good. <laughs> that resonates deeply with me <laughs> for sure. 
I know that one thing you've done is that you tend to film a lot of your process of actually making your work. Is that right? Yeah. I was trying to think of a way once I left um, a business that I helped start in Austin um, a few years ago to paint full time. Uh, I was trying to think of a way to reach, reach an audience. I mean, we have the ability as artists to reach audiences in ways that we've never been able to in the past with social media and YouTube and all these. We have different formats that, that help the audience actually find us today, rather than us going out on the street and trying to find an audience. And I was reading uh, Austin Kleon's book, Steal Like an Artist and Show Your Work. And he's so big on all you have to do is put out in a great way your media, what you're doing, and people will find you. But do it so well that a crowd has no choice but to find you. And so I was thinking through that and I was like, you know, one of the things that's missing in, in the fine art world is artists don't talk about how they make their work. Um, and I'm constantly searching for the guys that I look up to to find old videos of them painting, ways that they use different techniques, and there's not much out there. And artists are always afraid to show, this is my technique, this is how I do this, because the fear of somebody stealing their style. Um, nothing's new under the sun, everything's been copied. Um, so there really shouldn't be a fear there. And so I thought the best way for me to really have a conversation with people beyond just artists, but also an audience is to show my process and how I create stuff. And so I film every piece that I do. That's amazing. You film every piece that you do. Every single piece. Wow. <laughs> That's incredible, man. I didn't realize that. That's really cool. Well, I'll put a link on the Makers and Mystics website where people can see some of your process. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned looking for film and videos of some of your influences. Who are some of your influences? Man, I, I mean, they change every other year because I'm constantly studying um, contemporary artists to artists of the past um, on a regular basis. It's part of my, just my studio discipline is to study and read. And my, my largest influence is most people can tell there's a lot of Cy Twombly uh, influence in my work. Um, Anthony Tapez, um, recently German, the German artist Anselm Kiefer. Um, years ago, Jean-Michel Basquiat, uh, Andy Warhol. Um, hmm. there, there are a number, Degas to uh, Rothko. I mean, I, I could just go on for, for days with lists of artists that, that just influence my work, but um, I'm constantly studying guys who I look up to today um, in today's world to artists from hundreds of years ago and, and trying to figure out ways to, to just grow as a craftsman. A contemporary artist that I really appreciate is Mako Fujimura. And I know that he's someone that has worked in, in abstract works and as well comes from a very strong tradition within his art and then also has the spiritual narrative in his work as well. Yeah, Mako, um, I got to meet a few years ago, um, actually a, a year and a half ago. We had dinner together and he became a mentor of mine last year, um, nice. right when he took on uh, the role at, at Brem, at Fuller mm -hmm. Theological. And one of our first conversations he had, uh, I was asking him a series of questions based on, on those things. Um, you know, being an artist with a faith background in, in the contemporary art world is, is really something that's frowned upon um, and is very mm -hmm. difficult to navigate. And one of, the, one of the quotes that he gave me that I've just really honed in on was to be true to your work 
and what it is. And the art world has a funny way of neglecting you, but eventually accepting you. That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, which kind of gave me, okay, I'm on the right track with, with the narrative Absolutely. in my work and, and being bold with it and knowing yeah. that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a long road to really break through. Yeah, that's really good. I know, um, you know, you mentioned Madeline Engel. I know that one of the things that she's often talked about in her book, Walking on Water, is serving the work and, and just being faithful to the work that you've been given to do. Yeah, I mean, and that's a, that's a scary thing because uh, I think it's really easy to not be true to it and to sell out and just create things that will sell. Um, I know every artist gets to a point when they're full-time and they're actually selling work where you know what's going to sell. You just know. Um, right. And the hard part is to stay true to your work and growing through those things rather than staying on the one thing that sells. Um, which we, if we're full-time in art, we need to make money and it's not an easy career to make money in, um, as an artist, it's not glitz and glam. It's a lot of hard work and peddling your work and going through dealers and trying to figure out ways that you can, you know, make some money each month. Um, Mm -hmm. but if you're going to stay true to what that work is and what the spirit may be telling you in your work, then you're probably going to have to leave some of those areas and take big risks. Well, I know that you've talked about how music has played a part in your work, and I think you've even created your own Spotify playlists of music that has inspired your work. Do you always listen to music when you're creating, and how does music impact what you put on the canvas? Music is a massive part of me creating and writing both, but I I usually create a specific playlist for every body of work or every time I go in the studio. Um, and so, I mean, when I, I was in Budapest last summer, I had an artist residency and my series I was working on was Cosmos in the Chaos, um, the spirit of harmony and matter. And I created an entire playlist with music that was a part of that journey and that story, which also was part of the story of my friend Allison and her husband Vernon, um, who he was in the hospital with severe brain damage after a scooter accident that he had had uh, two years present. And I was using music that was a part of their life and their story and journey, as well as music that kind of spoke to me about that story. Um, And so the whole time I was there, I was thinking through their story, the chaos in their life, the cosmos that was gonna come at the end of their story and using that music to continue to build into the work I was creating. I think a lot of people have this idea about abstract art where their first encounter with it, it looks like, you know, splattered colors or it just looks like, you know, different textures and things working together. But I know, especially with you, your work has an intense amount of study that goes behind it. It's not just splattered colors and and things like that, that, you know, that people might perceive that don't know that about your process and and even how you're saying you create a playlist of music for each work that you create that's really fascinating to me just to to see how much thought and how much study goes into what you do can you elaborate on that like how does your study inform the choices you make when you're actually in front of the canvas 
Sure. Um, so I did a commission piece for a, one of my best friends a few years ago, and he would, had just been through a horrible divorce. And I was trying to think of how in the world can I do a painting for him that's going to hang on his wall, that's going to hold just some heavy emotional truths, maybe full of joy and suffering, maybe a comb- combination of both, but really gives him freedom um, in what he was experiencing. And so I thought, man, I, I need to do this the way I do my own work. So I had him create a playlist for me of music that was music he listened to during that trial, going through the divorce. Mm. Music that was sad, music that was hopeful, music that got him through it, music that maybe he just sat and wallowed in, but just to create this playlist that was that time and that experience. And then I had him send me books that he read during that time, quotes, scripture, different things that really had an influence in that period of time. And then really, I guess you would say, I kind of took the same, uh, the same practice as a method actor. And I put that music on and I, I read those books and I, I got those quotes and put them up all over my wall. I got colors from a tattoo that he got on the inside of his arm that represented that period of life being over and the freedom in it. And I used that color story and then throughout the painting, as I was creating it, I would write words from uh, John Steinbeck's East of Eden, which was a big book that got him through that time. And so I wrote mm-hmm. quotes from the book on there, and then I would paint over them and kind of go with the music and listening to Arvo Part and different things that he had wrapped up in there that really got me into the story to create it. And so I, I similarly do that with my other work. And I have a new series that I'm working on Um, called These Are My Shapes, which is a conversation between myself and the audience. And each piece represents a period of my life from birth to now. And the sixth piece in that series would be about the 10-year-old age, so the second decade of life. And I use multiple layers of burlap and cloth um, and different things that kind of representative of the longer you move through life, the more things start to attach to you to form your character and your personality and who you become. Um, and mm-hmm. so as this body of work goes along, the more things start to attach and build up to the canvas. So it's representational of our character and our personality as we grow older. Things stick and attach to us and they form our personality. And then in the middle of it, I put a huge red strike. And that huge red strike represents This is the first time in life that you kind of feel as if you have some freedom and you're starting to form a person because the prior 10 years, you're really protected by your parents and family and those things around you. But yet you're also scared of that freedom and growing up and you kind of still want to be taken care of by your family and your parents. And so all of the colors, all of the pieces, all of the layers and things absolutely represent real things. They're just done in an abstract way. Wow. Honestly, man, and I, and I think just in my own work that I'm doing with artists and, and building these bridges of understanding, hopefully, between art and faith, between spirituality and creativity, one of the things that is a huge part of my mission is, is to bring understanding to the inherent value of abstract art. And especially in faith communities, a lot of times, if there's not a depiction uh, of some realistic imagery or even a, a narrative, you know, in a common language or 
a lion or a dove or something even it it seems that there's there's not an understanding of how this is communication and how this impacts you on a psychological and spiritual and emotional level but just hearing you talk about your process in this and seeing the depth behind it man that's that's just left me with inspiration already wow that's awesome when you were talking about how your work has an impact on its viewers when you're not even in the room to me that almost speaks to the spiritual dynamic of art and how it actually has a life within it or even if you look at some of the the way that the hebrews even looked at how words have a life and a vitality of their own you know when they're spoken they create reality and I've never thought about that in terms of visual art, but hearing you talk about your work impacting people even when you're not there, to me, points to that spiritual dynamic within your work. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think we're all, all humans are created to be odd. So yeah. we're created to see colors, we're created to see views and landscapes and just go, wow, and be touched by that. And I think that's the beauty of the creator and the divine is creating things that have such a beauty to look upon that every human on the planet holds their breath for a moment, takes a deep sigh, has to close their eyes because they can't believe how incredible this view of the Grand Canyon or, you know, the Atlantic Ocean at sunset or Antarctica and the vast white. Like as a human being, it's it's in your soul to look at these things and, and have to gasp at the beauty. And I think that that's what art can do. Um, I don't know what it is that makes the art do that. Is it the artist and what he puts into the piece is what comes out of the piece, whether the artist has no absolute reason or meaning to put it into the piece in the first place. I just know that I've sat in rooms with work like Henry Nowen um, and been just swept away in tears. Um, I went to the, the Basquiat retro retrospect in Houston, I think maybe, gosh, 10 years ago, um, and I had cigarettes on my headphones and I was sitting in front of some of my favorite Basquiat pieces and just weeping. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, what, what is it about that moment? What is it about the work? Is it the combination of my life and that work? Is it my combination of the spirit moving through the work of a guy, you know, who died of a drug overdose that was a mess, but yet created this beauty on canvas and wood? Um, what is that combination? What is that communicating? Um, I don't know, but those are the questions that I want to come through in my work when I hang it on a wall. That's how I want my voice to speak when I leave the room. I love the ideas that you've shared with me on the cosmos in the chaos and just the journey through that study that you've done. And, and I'd love to know more about the process that went into that and kind of what it was that you were thinking through and what was impacting you that led to that series. Can you elaborate more on that? Yeah, so my friend, as I, as I shared earlier, my friend Allison, um, who got married late, her husband uh, was a brilliant uh, font creator. He's created a, a ton of the fonts that everybody uses today and um, would lecture at Cambridge and Oxford and he, he was just a stud. And he was in a scooter accident that left him um, basically in bed with severe brain damage and no healing in sight. And so when I left to do a, a residency in Budapest, um, they had just been heavy on my, on my heart and mind because I had been following their journey through her, through her blog. Um, and as I was thinking through what to do during my residency in Budapest, 
um, I had to work small because I didn't have space to do large scale canvases like I do. So I knew there was gonna be uh, some big risks for me and challenges, which I love when it comes to art. Um, so when I got there, it ends up that my studio space was in a basement where three families survived Nazi Germany um, in a home in Budapest, Hungary. And so each day I would go down the steps into this basement that was really small um, and had a metal door that had machine gun holes where the Nazis tried to get through to get the families and were unsuccessful. So I'm in this space that, that had so much chaos in it at one point. And I'm thinking about my friend Allison's story and the chaos in her life. But then I'm also looking at the freedom and the cosmos of the joy that those families had to find in that place together to survive. And what Allison and her family had brought to the home where her husband Vernon was staying, bringing music and art and photography to all these brain trauma victims and brought all this life and this cosmos in the midst of it. And so I started working through that. Um, and the last week of my residency, Vernon passed away and I'd followed the last few days. They knew he was going. And in the last week, there was so much beauty and so much cosmos in the room um, around their family, um, their daughter and his son, and the things that Vernon was saying and realizing for the first time um, in his brain injury, things that he probably shouldn't have realized. Um, and it was just this magical moment, but also knowing that this chaos was soon gonna end for, for Allison and her family, and that there was freedom coming um, and beauty in that. And so I just wrapped my head around that in my heart as much as I could to create in that time and that space. Wow, that's beautiful. That's beautiful, man. Well, Ty, thank you so much for talking with us on Makers and Mystics, and I look forward to keeping up with your work and just seeing what's next for you. Absolutely, I appreciate you guys having me and uh, this, is, this has been great. Thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This episode is brought to you by Jonathan Bryans, Bradley Hayes, and all of our patrons. If you'd like to learn more about how you can become a patron for this podcast, visit us at patreon.com forward slash makers and mystics. You can also join Ty Clark, myself, and a host of other friends at The Breath and the Clay, March 22nd through 25th. Information on this event can be found at thebreathintheclay.com. Featured music for this episode is provided by Long Lake and The Slow. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.